Welcome to the Rise Network podcast show, a podcast dedicated to help you reach your dream lifestyle through investing in real estate. We're going to be sitting down with new, intermediate, and experienced investors to talk all about real estate and how it has changed their lives. If you're looking to scale your portfolio or even just get into real estate investing, you're in the right place. Make sure to tune in. Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Rise Real Estate Investing Podcast with your host. Oh, fuck. (laughs) (laughs) With your host, Austin Yeh. And Mayu. What's going on, everybody? Sorry, guys. My brain is, yeah, my brain is completely uh, cloudy and foggy right now. If you follow me on social media, I've gotten a puppy recently. And for anyone who ever has gotten a dog, um, on puppy stages, they just keep you not uh, up all day and night. So I've just been mentally drained and exhausted. So the first week is this is this first week I would say is a pretty significant break from real estate, even though I am still on and off. But my brain's just not functioning at full capacity right now. Damn, it's not like you said a kid, man. That's pretty rough. <laughs> it's it basically is like a it's like a precursor to a child. <laughs> yeah. How's everything with you, Mayu? It's good, man. It's good. Uh, the past week was. More so just um, mortgage files that we were getting through. Um, the flip on my end. Uh, the flip. Oh, the mortgage <laughs> files. Okay. So like, oh, you, you've taken like, now it's like full steam ahead on the mortgage yeah. agent side, right? Yeah. So now, now it's full steam ahead on the mortgage side. I'm, I got to figure out my social media calendar. We'll see like what kind of educational videos I do on mortgages. Because that's something that definitely don't talk about enough there. Uh, but yeah, that's basically replacing nine to five. It's, it's a mortgage nice. side. Um, the flip in tiny Ontario finally sold. Yeah, yesterday or on Monday or something like that. Um, that one was interesting. That we uh, we listed at four ninety nine. We thought um, we thought market value was about like five fifty. Like, okay, no, we thought aggressively if we were above five fifty, that's that's a, like a big, like it's a really good offer that came in, right? Okay, <laughs> hold on. That five fifty was that after market depreciation? You were like, oh, since the market appreciated, it should be five fifty, or is that like even before it could have reached five fifty? Um, before it would probably like if. Actually, no, like the cottage market was always pretty hot. Oh, true. Um, I think like, yeah, like ever since we bought it, I think um, in February, we tried listing it at 400 just to see if we could sell it without doing any work. Um, and at that time, the estimates that we had was like 500 to 550 as well. So like we okay. weren't like, far off. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so hitting anything above 550 was like, shit, like we're really lucky. Um, anything above 500 was like, okay, that's kind of like a fair offer, like 500 to 550. And then anything below, like I was like, I'm not going to sell it under, under 500. Um, so we listed at 499, uh, crazy amount of showings. I think what happened with this cottage is uh, really close to our neighboring property. And as a result, no offers on offer day. Right? So really, oh, so it's not secluded, eh? It's just like, it's like kind of, there's neighbors yeah. on both sides. There's Well, there's neighbors on one side and then it's a corner lot, but like still, mm-hmm. it's like a pretty small lot, right? It, but it is the cheapest cottage in in like cottage country, even though it's fully renovated, it's still like not that expensive. It's not waterfront. It's not a huge lot, things like that. But if you kind of think about who's coming to buy a cottage, it's not people that are probably price sensitive between 500 and 700, right? And if on 700, if you can get the big lot or with like water views or something like that, you're probably going to go for that, right? So um, I think that was main, the main like hurdle that we had to overcome, but I don't know. It was a good learning lesson. And then basically the offer came in and the guy wanted 500 for it. And then it was just a negotiation game, but his offer was super clean, right? Like closed within like 30 days, um, 50K deposit, no conditions. So I was like, honestly, I'd much rather just work with this guy and get this thing done than I would wait for someone else to come, have a condition of inspection, give that two weeks, 
do it again and so on and so on. Right. This way, at least we can like start looking for another flip to close near the end of July. That's like, that's ideal for us. Right. So, yeah, that's awesome. So in terms of, we always talk about the market kind of uh, easing off in terms of offers. Is that something that you've noticed as well? And something you're going to be more cognizant of moving forward on your flips? hundred percent, man. I think uh, you and I talk about this quite a bit, but I think, uh, we, we had a lot of showings. I, I think there's a, like, it's a pretty consistent sentiment. Like whatever market realtor you talk to for the most part, they all say that the same properties that used to get like 10 offers now get like two or three offers. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I think people are just tired. Like as things open up now it's summer, I think we're having a reverse effect of how it used to be a few years ago where in the summer, like the housing market was or like spring, the housing market was crazy. And then summer it stayed kind of consistent with that. And towards mm-hmm. the end of the summer, like it picks up. Right. Um, but I think now like, lockdown. So everyone had nothing else to do, but look at real estate. Now things are kind of opening up. The weather is improving. I think people are just like moving on. Like they're like, you know, tired of constantly hunting for a house. And if they have that option to defer, they're just deferring it. That's my like complete estimate. But um, yeah, I mean, what are you guys seeing on the wholesale side? I'm sure like even the off market, you guys are kind of feeling that effect too, right? No. So on the wholesaling side, a lot of like sellers are still, they still want top dollar. Nothing has changed from the seller's point of view. And the reality is, is that market dynamics have kind of shifted. So we want to lock things up at, you know, better prices, even yeah. though prices haven't shifted drastically or anything like that, pretty much not, not, not really at all. Um, but like the sellers still want that top dollar, right? So we're yeah. just being more cognizant on that side. Yeah. So I always have like a theory that the off market runs on a lag from the MLS, right? So when yeah. you're in an upward market, sellers don't really know what their properties were today because they're using like historical data that's maybe two to three months old. And then when you're in a downward market, the sellers refuse to accept that you're in a downward market and they're like listing off like comps from like- Yeah, they're like, I can do a better job than their realtor. It's basically what they think. It's like, I want to save on commission fees and I still want top dollar and it just doesn't work like that off market, (laughs) (laughs) you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Uh, so you guys locked up a deal as well recently, right? Yeah, we locked up a deal. We have a six units um, that is closing today in Sudbury. Um, we also had an eight, not had, we have an eight unit that we closed on a while uh, ago and we kind of just left the occupants in there, but I had cash for keys conversation last week before the puppy came, because I knew that was going to keep me busy. Uh, fortunately was able to negotiate four out of the eight tenants to leave. And I think I should have success negotiating one more, um, for a cash for keys offer. And then we have a duplex that we're finishing renovations on. One unit's tenanted. I was able to convince that tenant to move to the completed unit in the back temporarily while we finish her unit. Then I'll move her back to her unit and have an uh, increase in rent. And she's totally okay with that. So she's going to be paying 95% of market rents. I couldn't get it to the full hundred, but still that's a huge W, right? Because I'm not paying leasing fees now. So I actually save money that way. Um, but that that's been keeping me busy, man. The cash for keys conversations is never an easy one. And it's always so exhausting. You just never know what you'll get in those conversations, but it's about staying calm, understanding the other person's perspective. One person just like, came out guns blazing when I went into their unit, came out and started just yelling at me almost instantaneously. I was like, oh shit, I've never dealt with that. Like usually it's like a pleasant, like, hello, how are you? How is she yelling or he? Yeah, so he he overheard me have the cash for keys conversations with other tenants. And then as I went to his unit, it came out and just buck wild and just started going crazy on me. And I was like, okay, this is obviously not a good start, um, but was able to remain calm, have a conversation with him, let him settle down. 
And he agreed to sign the cash for keys for him as well by the end of it, which, yeah, that was the biggest, w- oh man, I, I impressed myself on that one, not going to lie. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, that's what we're going to be working on, wrapping that project up. Um, but anyway, so <laughs> I know that's a very popular topic. I don't know, maybe we should have an episode on that. Like there's a person named Adam Kitchener. We should have him on, like I know he's a pro at that. Um, but that's neither here or there. We're going to jump into today's podcast today. And I'm very excited for this episode. Today, we have Stephen Hung on, and Stephen is quite an interesting investor. He actually lives out in British Columbia, but he invests ultra long distance down in Moncton, which is in New Brunswick. Uh, He's actually a newly graduated dentist, long distance investor. He's also invested in the U.S. He primarily does multifamily properties with value add renovations, turning around tenants and increasing rent. And Stephen was actually gracious enough, even before this podcast, to jump on a call with Mayu and I to just give us the one-on-one breakdown about the new Brunswick market. And today we're going to kind of be doing the same, getting into his journey and then learning a bit more about the Moncton market and how he makes numbers work. So this is an episode you definitely don't want to miss, especially if you want to invest long distance, make sure to tune in. Hey everyone, we are joined with a guest and I'm very excited uh, to, to have on. It's going to be, I kind of know your background a bit, but I want the audience to, to hear it as well because you're doing some pretty cool stuff. We're joined with Stephen Huang. Stephen, how are you today, man? Yeah, I'm doing great, Austin. Thanks for having me on here. And uh, it's good to, good to see you guys in person. Awesome, Stephen. So I know myself and Austin chatted with you a few months ago, but um, for everyone that might not know you already, like what's your background? How did you get started in real estate? What do you do? Um, all that good stuff. Yeah, totally. Uh, so a bit about myself. I'm uh, 26 years old. I'm from Vancouver. I'm probably by the time this podcast comes out, I'll get my license to start working as a dentist. So I just recently nice. graduated from UBC. Um, I spent eight years in the Canadian Armed Forces as a reservist. And I started uh, real estate investing in 2012. When I first got started, I went down to the US and started buying some foreclosure properties. Now I deal mainly in multifamily properties out in New Brunswick. And currently, uh, the portfolio I have is about 54 units across nine buildings. And we got another 12 in a contract. So that's sort of uh, a 60 second summary of who I am and my background. You have another 12 buildings or another 12 units under contract? 12 units. Not 12 oh man, I was like, <laughs> both are super impressive. <laughs> Wait, you said, okay, so you're 26 now and you started investing in 2012. Yes. Yeah. Did you just like you just finished high school? So I was in my last year of high school, and I was seventeen. So I actually I don't think I was legally allowed to sign on anything. So uh, you know, if you want to get into that, like I joined one of those guru mentoring uh, coaching groups, um, and they were, at the time they were teaching Canadians how to go down into the U.S. Uh, to buy like foreclosures, right? So we started out in Phoenix, Arizona and Atlanta, Georgia. And I say we is myself and my brother, who was two years older than me at the time. Um, so yeah, we were youngest people in the, in the crowd. You know, everyone was average 40s in their 50s. Um, but, you know, it's a, it's a good game to get into and everything just made sense. So that's how we got started. Let's talk about that experience a bit. I want to dive down into what attracted you to the States and are you still investing in the States? And when you kind of started investing in the States, how was that journey like? Because you were only 17 at that time. Oh, and we should make mention, you are not in Toronto, actually. You're in uh, Vancouver, right? Yes, I'm in Vancouver, BC. And mm-hmm. I've been here the whole time that I've been doing this. Um, yeah, so why did we get started in the US? Well, back then, like 
the investments, it just kind of made sense to go down to the U.S. Um, because at the time, the Canadian to U.S. dollar, uh, we were close to par. And then they were just coming out of the great financial recession, right? So there was a ton of foreclosures that hit the markets starting in 2009, 2010. So when we got in at 2012, it was just starting to come back. Um, so we were buying buildings for about 30000 a door to $50,000 a door, getting something like seven, dollars $800 a month per unit um, in rents. So back then, it was like 1% rule all day, sometimes close to 2% rule. <laughs> right? So obviously, things have changed. Um, but then, yeah, so things just made sense in terms of cash flow perspective in the U.S. compared to where I live in Vancouver. Uh, where a million dollar can't get you anything that's, you know, not part of the condo tower. Um, yeah. So, okay. <laughs> I Googled from BC to Arizona or Phoenix because I had no idea how far it was, but that is nowhere near BC. So why did you go to BC? Uh, sorry. Why did you go to Phoenix to, to do your investing? Um, how does the financing work for the U S and I know you're not doing the U S side now, so we won't go too deep into it, but I'm sure a, you're right out of high school your brother's only like a couple years older than you or something. So it's not like you guys are flush with capital or something like that. Um, and I'm sure investing in the U S like now you don't even meet like the big five bank, like criteria like, what did you have to do? Like, how did you get around those hurdles? Right. So that was, that was the biggest reason that we're not still investing there is because of financing. Um, so obviously when we first started, we had to go to a bank of mom and dad. So it was borrowing funds from family and we, we bought everything cash. So we couldn't get financing from the bank, but, the because of how low the price points were, it just mm -hmm. just made sense, right? You could get like a seven eight percent cap. The cash on cash would be about the same, but then it just it just made sense. Um, why we chose Phoenix? Well, back then, how that coaching group worked was they had a couple in person events at different markets in the U.S. So one of the day or like two of the days, we'd spend at like the convention center and they'd have talks and presentations all day and. Usually the day after is we just go and drive around the neighborhoods with some local agents. So then we just, we basically got handed a deal package. It was a hundred thousand dollar duplex. Um, the owner was actually offering 80% seller financing on it at like a 5% interest. So then we ran the numbers. We we're like, Hey, we'll get 1200 bucks a month in rent, hundred thousand dollars. Everything we were taught so far, it just made sense. So being naive, you know, naive 17 and 19 year olds, we just believe the spreadsheet. So then we just jumped right in and, uh, you know, offered on the property and got it. So that was our very first deal. And then afterwards we, because the coach that we were working with, she was investing in Atlanta. So we just piggybacked off of her sort of team that she knew her managers that she introduced us to. Um, and then we just started investing heavily there. So that's Atlanta, Georgia. That's awesome. So I love one, one key learning lesson there is, is that you kind of invested in yourself. And as a result, you got connected with local investors or people who had power team set up. So a lot of people ask like, how do you even have the nerve or, or competence to invest long distance? Well, you need to know the right people. In this case, you did know the right people to have those systems set up. And uh, okay. So you grew your portfolio a bit in Atlanta as well. When did you decide to make a pivot? Are you still holding those properties? Like what kind of change? Cause I, now I know you're in Moncton, which we'll get into a bit later. Yeah. So basically from about 2012 to 2014, 2015, we were actively buying basically whatever we can get our hands on because you know, everything was just making sense on the spreadsheet. So we just blindly followed the spreadsheet. Um, we stopped buying um, mainly because we, you know, we had just, we jumped completely headfirst into the market and we didn't get our operations down well. So we ran into a much higher vacancy than what we had projected. 
right? So it took a, like one or two managers that we had to go through before we found someone that was, you know, like a rock star and just kept vacancy basically at zero. So then basically we had, at that point, we had probably 20 something doors across multiple like single family duplexes, triplexes, and fourplexes. So then we just decided, hey, we put in a ton of money since we bought all cash. Um, we've heavily leveraged ourselves and borrowed from friends and family at this point. Let's take a pause. Let's get everything solidified with our operations and then eventually maybe get back into it. Right. So, and also during that time, I ran into one horror story with a five units. Um, it was my first exposure to something that was five units and up. But basically, I, you know, all the nightmare situations happened, right? The zoning ended up not fitting. Um, we were only allowed to four units on the five unit. The contractor stole our money and ran away. Uh, it just turned into a whole nightmare that kind of turned me off real estate for a couple of years. So, between 2015 to 2018, I just completely stopped buying anything new. We just held on to what we had, continued to cash flow it. Um, and then, sort of closer to 2018 was when I thought, hey, I want to get back into real estate, but this time I want to go bigger. I want to get some big multis, but also because of financing, that meant I had to look in Canada. Okay. So I ended up looking across the country. I actually initially wanted to go into Edmonton, but then, you know, I even put a building under contract there. It was a 12 unit building. I think they were asking 114,000 uh, per, per door. When I was running the numbers, I was like, you know, when I like, I'm very, I'm very conservative, conservative when I run my numbers. So this one was coming in at a cap rate of, you know, they were saying that this was a six cap for the way I ran my numbers properly. And when I got their actual financials, it was coming in at like a four and a half, four and a half percent cap rate. At the time, the interest rates were like 3%. And then I was talking to this mentor of mine who was also a dentist at my school. And then I, I just happened to find out that he was in real estate and I ran this deal by him. And then he told me that, Hey, like I invest out in Halifax. And back there, I was getting like 6% cap rates. So the spread was much better. Whereas in Edmonton, if I was only getting like 1.5% spread between the cap rates and interest rates, like if interest rates even move in the wrong direction, it's, you know, I could be in a world of hurts. So I ended up walking away from that deal and then happened to stumble upon New Brunswick um, because there was, uh, there was a friend of mine who was going to school there and he just made an offhand comment that, hey, uh, there's this duplex that was really cheap there. And I was just like, oh, I've never... I didn't even know what cities were in New Brunswick, except for uh, Fredericton, right? Yeah. So I ended up just going on bigger pockets. I messaged a couple of local guys, reached out, um, asked them for some referrals to so maybe like an agent or a property manager or two, just did my research. And then sort of just realized that, hey, you know, there, it was possible to find a cash flowing market that had similar numbers to what I found in the US, in Canada. So then I just, I kept looking through the market, eventually put in an offer on a 12 unit building. And when I got it on a contract, I then flew out there to do the due diligence and the whole team. And then that was sort of how they kicked things off in 2018. And then we just we kept going from there and bought another eight buildings. Um, when you were investing in Arizona, because I just heard you say that you flew out to New Brunswick. When you were investing in Arizona um, and Georgia, did you go, did you fly out there a lot or were you more, um, like how often did you go down there? So we never, except for the very first deal where we walked through it with the agents before we put in an offer on it. Every other deal we bought in the U.S., we bought sight and see. Oh, okay. Right? And that was sort of part of the whole system that this uh, coaching group was teaching us, right? That we can buy these properties sight unseen using local people on the ground. So we just hire an inspector, hire contractors to go through uh, during the due diligence period. They would give us all the photos and videos that we needed to make a decision. Um, and then, you know, the lawyer does their legal due diligence and then we just close on it. And then we hand the keys over to the contractors. Property manager takes over. So it was very, very hands-off. Let me ask you this then, because um, 
I know myself in Austin, we're more so like doing this approach now as well. Right. Um, and I know you said you got burned by the contractors and, um, things like that, that kind of have happen post close, like vacancies, all that stuff is a post close problem. Um, but did you have any, like, did an inspector ever lie to you? Did a realtor ever lie to you? Did you get like misled? Was there any problem with like buying properties, essentially kind of sight unseen? So, so far of all the deals we've done, so we never had issues with the agents lying to us or the inspectors like outright lying to us. We had, I had one, um, like a couple months ago in New Brunswick where he missed aluminum wiring. So I've kind of sworn off using inspectors now. I just send in the actual trades to do, do inspections. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, but the only person that it was the same contractor, he was also the, the guy who wholesaled me the deal. Um, so basically because he had given me a single family home deal that turned out okay. I kind of went on trust on this next deal and didn't do the proper amount of digging. Um, and then when things got tied up with the city, he then eventually just ghosted me. Um, so that was the only instance where I, I ran into issues. And I usually find that if you want to be a long distance investor, the biggest issue you're going to have is with contractors, right? Even when you're already there in person, it's already hard enough to manage them to make sure they show up on time. Um, get, yeah everything done, make sure they're not juggling multiple jobs, right? That's already a pain in the ass when you're in person. So when I'm doing this from far away where I can't verify the, the actual scope of work, is it actually as bad as what they said it is? Um, it just makes things way harder. So, so let's get into that on the contractor side. Um, Cause you're doing these big multifamilies, obviously the renovation costs aren't cheap. And like, it's easier for a contractor to lie on a scope of work with the multi family building than it is a single family home. Right. So what are some systems that you have in place now to ensure renovations are done to the quality that you're looking for? Shortcuts aren't taken. Um, and your contractors are doing things in a timely fashion. Yeah, sure. Uh, so basically I, so my whole business depends on the property con or sorry, the property manager super heavily. Right? So they're the, they're the, they're the hub of my wheel. And basically I base everything off of the property manager, right? If I was going to a new market, I know a lot of people that give the advice that if you want to go to a new market, you find a investor focused agent first, and then they'll refer you to a team. For me, I actually prefer to go off the a rockstar property manager, right? Cause at the end of the day, you know, besides from the acquisition side, the property manager is the one that's going to ensure the success of your, of your deal. So when I had these renovation projects going on, I basically send in my property manager, and the contractor together doing due diligence and they walk the building together. So she's the one who's telling the contractor, Hey, I want this done. I want this done. And I want this done. So she's also the one when the job is complete, who goes back in to like, as she's going there to take all the, the leasing photos, she's also criticizing their work and pointing out all the flaws that they need to be done. And this just happened like in the last week. Right? So I've been using the same contractor for the last, for the last basically, nine months. Right. And he's done a fantastic job, but even though he's like a really switched on dude, he still like forgets things or he has his own subs that drop the ball. Right. So we recently had a basement unit that was finished. I haven't posted anything about it yet, but you know, he sent me a text and said, Hey, it's all done. And I was about to kind of, because we've done so many renovations with, I was already ready to send him the transfer for the last bit of funds I was holding back. I just said, okay, but you know what, just hold on. Let me get my manager, Amy to, give me the thumbs up before I send it. And she went in, she's like, no man, like the loft unit, he did awesome. But this one, like the paint looks like shit. He's got like patches in the closet. What you did finish up. It's not done. So for me, I depend on the property manager to verify that for me. Right. Mm -hmm. So the way I run my business is I believe in the, in the phrase trust, but verify. And then, so all this has to be two different people. 
who does it. Right. So especially on the contractor side, my manager is the one that's watching. Yeah, I know that that makes a lot of sense, right? Because your property manager wants to get you top rent. They want you, they want to get a good quality tenant because if they can't, they're making their own lives harder. so they want the best quality possible so they're 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 obviously going to be picking and looking at any mistakes or any changes or any recommendations on the unit so that's genius are you paying your property manager extra for doing all of this so i thought she was going to charge me extra but she just seems to love to do work so sometimes i'll ask her hey can you just drop by the building and she'll just say yeah i'll do it and then it's it's really close by so she doesn't charge me extra they just charge me a uh, a fixed um like a monthly like percentage off of rents collected. And also what's nice is because myself, I have so many units with her and my brother also has built his own small portfolio in Moncton between us. Like we probably make up almost 20% of their company's business. Wow. So when we ask him just say, Hey, can you check this out? She doesn't buy. Nice. But you wouldn't be a pole. Like if you're entering a different market, you don't have that relationship with the property manager, you wouldn't be opposed to pay them for, for that no, kind of right? small. Like if someone's doing an important job for you, I would absolutely pay them for the time, right? If you're spending say half an hour there, paying them 50 bucks, hundred bucks, even if they're going to be really diligent for you. And yeah, that's an important point. Just don't be cheap about it. And so many people are just cheap about saving like dollars, you know? Yeah. I also think exactly. what, we, what we're doing on our end with like renovations and like improving the overall quality of the building is making the property manager's job a little bit easier, right? Whether it comes to releasing it out or, or less turnover or the good quality tenants, all that stuff, it's because we're renovating it. We're improving the quality, right? And, and a lot of the times I'll be like, like there's a tenant turnover, turnover and I'll be like, okay, so like, what do we need to renovate? And they'll be like, no, I think it can be renovated as is. But I'm like, like what do we need to do to like make sure that's like top quality tenants. Right. So we are like kind of going above and beyond to produce that good quality product. Right. Um, so, so, so let's talk about kind of what you're, what you're doing in Moncton today. Cause I don't think we dug too deep into that. We stopped at where you bought your first, uh, your first multifamily, which was a 12 plex. Is that right? Yes. That was the first, the big one that I bought. Moncton. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. So then when was that? And then how did it go from there? Like what was the challenges that you dealt with, with your first building? Um, and then what have you continued to do since then? Sure. Um, so with the first building, it was a 12 unit, like a uh, purpose built apartment building. So it was all brick on the outside. It's, it's a brick facade. Um, and but I love your brick buildings yeah. <laughs> much I better than them. vinyl and aluminum. Yeah. It also looks really nice. Eh? Oh yeah. They, they do. Especially if you go in and do like a, a new paint job on the outside, like you will stand out from all the other mm. competitors. Um, so basically it was 11 units are two beds. One is a bachelor unit. Um, all the rents when I came in were approximately around 750 to 800 with heat and lights included. So power hydros included for them. And my plan when I went in was just to basically do a slow burr. It wasn't going to be a, like a perfect burr where I pull out all my equity that I put in. Um, but it was going to basically, I was just going to increase the income try and decrease the expenses where I can and then refi in three years. So right now with that building, we're about a year and a half into it. Um, and we've gone through and renovated eight of the 12 units. And with the remainder, we've already pushed their rents up to a level where I'm happy not renovating it because they're willing to pay more. And with a building. So when we first bought it, what we did was we sent all the tenants a three months notice that the rent was going to increase to a new level. And the purpose of that is to one, weed out bad tenants because a lot of them who've been in there for a long time, like they don't want to pay or they don't pay. Once they get an increase, they just bounce. So after that, we, so after sending out that notice, we had about three units come vacant immediately. So I was able to immediately start turning over those units. Um, and then the goal was basically as each unit turns over, I would either, I would go in and renovate it 
And as each unit becomes complete with the work, I was actually going to ask one of the existing tenants if they wanted to move into the new unit at perhaps a higher rent. None of them actually took me up on the offer, which, which was fine. So I just eventually slowly turned it over and probably, and yeah, and then we plan to do an exit at three years with the refinance and then just continue to hold it. Okay. Let's, Oh, so Maya, you're going to ask something. No, I, was I think we're say, probably well, thinking the same thing. Uh, well, I don't know. I, I was going to say, why wait the three years, right? Like why not just refinance in stages? Yeah. So mainly is because with my financing, I locked myself in with real term. And because it does take me some time to turn it over. And with the banks, with the appraisers, sometimes they want to see minimum six months, usually a year of expenses. Yeah. Um, I wanted to be able to have that history. So it was going to take me, so this August, there'll be two years. So my goal is by this August, I was going to have the income where I wanted to. And I also wanted to have time for them to see that the utilities have dropped because I had gone in and put in uh, heat pumps to replace some of the electrical uh, baseboard heat, which during the winter months could, went up as high as $200 a month. And now with the new heat pumps, I've seen a drop as low as $80 a month during the winter. So I want them to see that history of lowered expenses, higher income, so I can get the best appraisal. My second question is going to be, why not stagger the rent increases and the unit turnovers, right? Because that's essentially the approach that I went with the New Brunswick. I was like, rather than getting, say, like seven or eight units vacant at the same time, contractors have to deal with like renovating all of them. You're hit with vacancies. Um, I'll just do two at a time, right? So I did, I serve rent increases for two once I know they're going to leave or not. But the problem with that is like, this entire thing is going to take me 12 months when I really could have done it (laughs) using Steve's approach in like, Six months yeah. or so, right? So is, is that so, essentially it? You just want to get it done faster? So Mayu, mine actually, it actually did turn out to be a slow turnover, like, your, like what you said. At most, I only ever had three units vacant. And then I, it was kind of just one at a time as we went. So my vacancy, the lowest it got to was only four units that were vacant at once. But the rest of the time, it was usually around 10 occupied, two vacants that were being worked on. Um, and that is sort of the preferred strategy, especially once you get to these larger buildings. But you do have a lot of debt service to cover you do have high property taxes. So, you know, you're, you're going to be burning through a lot of cash. You're going to have to raise a lot more, um, like in reserves, if you just completely empty the building. So actually what I was going to ask is uh, just to educate our audience a bit. Um, we're not allowed to do that in Ontario. We don't buy a building and just serve everyone with rent increases, right? So uh, maybe chime in a bit on um, the... I guess the landlord tenant, but is it still the LTB down in, um, what do you call it? And, uh, New Brunswick as well, right? They, yeah, there's their own like tenant board. Like what are the regulations there? Can you just turn over tenants and just increase rents whenever? Sure. Yeah. That's a great question, Austin. So for me, like my first criteria, whenever I was looking at any, uh, markets for real estate was number one, what is the legislation like? Is it pro landlord or pro tenants? Because the way I see it, you know, if it's in a very pro, um, tenant, province or state, you're starting off the competition with one arm tied behind your back, right? Your top line is already capped. And say if we hit a point of like, you know, higher than expected inflation, your expenses will show up much faster than what your income is going to come up by, right? So it just, it just doesn't make sense to me to, to put yourself at that disadvantage, right? I know lots of your audience probably invest in Ontario um, mm-hmm. and you guys make it work in your own way. But for me, it's just an additional headache I don't want to deal with. So in New Brunswick, the way the laws work is it is much more, I would say it's fairly neutral. It's probably what it should be. So there's no rent caps as to how much you can raise it by. So you're just basically capped by the free market, right? What competitors are willing to offer. Um, and there's also, there's no rules about, oh, you have to be asking tenants to leave 
for yourself to move in or immediate family to move in. Right? So if their lease ends, you can just ask them to leave um, because you don't want to renew it. Right? You can also, give, if it's on a month to month, you can give them the appropriate two or three months notice and ask them to leave. Right? So it's much more like, to me, it's, it's the way things should be because all the markets I've invested in, in Arizona, in Georgia, and Brunswick, they've all been like that. But to me, that's like, you know, when I hear stories of guys in Ontario and BC, they're like, I can't get my tenant out. And I'm just like, it, it doesn't make sense. Like, I remember I was talking to my manager in Georgia and she was telling me that, um, yeah, if the tenant doesn't pay on the first, they lay on the fifth and by the 15th, they've already got a court date to basically to go in front of a judge and be like, and ask, Hey, why are you not paying rent? And you know, they can't, they can't hold rent back for you not doing repairs. They can't be like, oh, the landlord is mean to me. I'm not paying rent. It's just, if you did you pay or not? If you didn't, here's your eviction notice. And then another 15 days later, the sheriff will come and physically remove them, right? So it's just, it's like, it's, it's like any other service, right? Between you, the landlord and the tenant, it's a contract. You guys both agreed. If you don't hold up your end of agreements, it's just, okay, things are laid out as to what the repercussions are. Okay. So that makes a lot of sense. So what I'm thinking now is, is that the next logical thought is, is that, Oh, it must be very easy to burn apartment buildings in Moncton. If you can easily turn over tenants. I know for a fact that that's not true. It is difficult to find deals, but why is that not the logic of why would anyone have an underperforming building in, in that, in that city? Right. It's totally. just super well, easy to turn around. Yeah, no, that's a great question, Austin. And honestly, I'm asking myself that, or I was asking myself that too. Um, and I think people have caught on. That's why there's been a lot of a flood of buyers coming in from BC and Ontario into New Brunswick, but also comes down to there just being a large capital cost being required, right? If you want to turn over a unit properly, I'm seeing usually on average of somewhere between 15 to $20,000 right, to turn over properly to make sure the mold is gone. And there's, cause there's always mold in the bathroom in these like 1970s, 1980s apartments um, to make sure I put in like, um, to make sure I freshen up the common areas, put in a, a dash of paint on the outside, right? All that really adds up with these buildings. So, you know, there's also a lot of owners who just own these buildings for a very long time and they're just comfortable with it, right? Maybe they bought the building for $150,000, like on a, say on like a four or five units. They're making 3000 a month in rents. They don't really care. Like they don't want to disturb the peace. They're fine with it. That, that makes a lot of sense. There also seems to be a huge range on what market rents should be, right? Um, where like you have like one one bedroom going for like eight hundred, and like a street down, two streets down, like someone else decides to like put it up for a thousand, and they luckily got someone, right? So there seems to be like this huge like range, and like I could be wrong, Stephen. You probably know more than me there, um, but there seems to be a huge range, even when you talk to different property managers in Moncton, as to what is reasonable rent for like a one bedroom, right? Um, and, and a lot of that is obviously driven also by the quality of the product. So like Stephen said, if you're sprucing it up and then you're re-renting out, that's great. But if you're not willing to put in the capital investment to renovate it, then you're probably not going to be able to lift that rent and like re-rent it out, right? Like people will just go somewhere else if they're living in like an old outdated apartment, right? Totally. Uh, yeah. And like part of the reason for that is because there has, so, so if you're not, for your listeners who aren't aware of what the rental rates have been like in, in Moncton, they've had very, very low vacancy, like in the 2% range for the last couple of years. So there was also a, a period where they had probably approximately, I think eight years ago, where there was way too much overbuilding. Um, so there was a point where vacancy hit 10% and it's been slowly coming down. But then for the last couple of years, it's been quite low. But because of how vacancy, how high vacancy had jumped for a couple of years, 
that kind of put a halt to like new construction or dropped significantly. Right. So now because they're facing quite a crunch in supply of rental units, the price has just gone up. It's kind of it's econ one oh one, right? There's there's a low supply, excess demand. Lots of people will start moving to New Brunswick, especially during COVID. Um, so we've seen, you know, the market is still trying to figure out how much a one bedroom should go for. Mm-hmm. So what are cap rates going um, in, in those type of areas? Not the way you calculate cap rates, because obviously you're conservative as all investors should be. But when a realtor markets it, what kind of cap rates are we seeing down at New Brunswick? Or, or let's, let's do this. When an appraiser appraises a, a property, what cap rates are they using? Sure. And so what I cap rates is a realtor claim? Yeah. <laughs> so basically, so with a product like a 1970s apartment building product that I've for instance, the 12 unit I described, right? I had a conversation with an appraiser I worked closely with um, within the last month. And I asked him, I'm like, hey, things have gone crazy. Have you started dropping the cap rates that you're appraising at? And he told me, no, we're still doing 7% cap rates on value, right? So the thing is, people are starting to buy now at 6% cap rates, right? It's trying to push up, like, so, so they'll buy at 6%. They'll put in a bunch of capital improvements, driveway income. And then maybe their money is working at like a 7.3% cap, right? But when they go to refinance, the bank is still only willing to do 7% the cap, mm. right? So the problem, or it's, it is, I see it as a problem is people are willing to bid down the cap rate because they're like, oh my God, 6% cap. I can't get that anywhere else in Canada. I'll pay for that. So it's kind of, so prices for these, this product, it's, it's risen to a point where it's getting very, very close to what the as repaired value should be, mm. right? So there's a very, very minimal spread between what it's worth afterwards and how much, how much you put in at the end, right? Or if anything, guys are almost paying sellers so they have the right just to fix it up to like make it that, that after repair value, you know what I mean? Yeah. So the way I see it is unfortunately that, that is, that's quite a risky thing to do, right? Because if say rent growth slows down, rent drops, or, you know, if vacancy increases, all of a sudden these people, they're going to have a lot of cash tied up in it. Now they're still going to get like, you know, say a 6% cap, um, or like on their money, which is not a terrible return. They could probably hold it for a long time, but it's definitely going to be overpaid for how these, how the local appraisers are appraising for. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep. That makes a lot of sense. And I think that's just a reality of Canadian real estate as a whole. What you're seeing in Moncton is what we're seeing in Ontario. People are paying at caps that don't even make any sense. And what's even more terrible is, is that turning around tenants, as we stated, is significantly harder. So you're going to be holding on to your crappy cap for even longer. So there's even more risk. I'm sure it's the same in Alberta. Uh, we were interviewing Mark Loeffler and he was saying caps are 5%, which I find quite shocking. I thought it'd be much higher, but it's just like a cap rate compression everywhere. Investors just with a lot of money are just trying to put their money in real estate. Yeah. So one of the things that, so one conversation I had with a, uh, a representative from a local credit union that I work with in Moncton, he told me that this was a couple a month or two ago, he got a call randomly out of the blue from a fund manager in Shanghai was asking about property in Moncton. And he was like, Moncton is not an international city. Why are people like from China looking at like this small, like small city in New Brunswick? Like it only has, 145,000 people in population. Like in Ontario, that'd be considered a small town, right? So it's, you know, I'm not an economist. I don't know what's going on in the world on, on that level, but there's basically a lot of money in the markets and they're looking to go somewhere. They're chasing yield. And I know maybe to someone who's not in Canada, 
Canadian real estate anywhere is Canadian real estate. So they start to view it almost with a similar lens, right? Which mm-hmm. is concerning for, you know, local, more and more local operators. I guess I can't call myself local, but uh, it's, it's a concern, right? You started investing in Moncton like a year and a half ago. Um, we talked a couple months ago and obviously the Moncton market has absolutely like exploded like everywhere else in, in, in Canada and the world. Right. But, um, Moncton's interesting because like a lot of us are, we're not, we're not going there for like cat, like appreciation. We're going this strictly for cash flow, right? Like cash and cash return, the ability to bear old properties, favorable down the rules. Um, so what are you doing now? What are your thoughts on the, on the current local market in Moncton? Um, are you still buying there? And as I said, I know you said you, you have a 12 year locked up, but, um, are you still aggressively buying there? Or like, what's your outlook for the market in Moncton? Yeah. It, that's funny you asked me this, Mayu, because if you asked me this a month ago, I'd be like, yeah, I'm still actively buying. I want to get it. But like recently I was reading this book. It's, uh, it's, by, it's by a guy named Howard Marks. It's called The Most Important Thing. And it's, it's a nice investing book. It's, there's no like super secrets uh, being revealed. But one of the things he did consistently talk about is just the importance of managing risks when you're investing, right? And to me right now, because of how bubbly the market has gone, my focus now is shifting more towards reducing the amount of risk I have and not trying to aggressively buy buildings, right? Because the way I finance my building is usually close to hundred um, percent financed somehow, right? Whether through seller financing, um, private seconds or, or the like. So am I going to aggressively buy stuff? No. If the right deal comes up through like my local network, I'll absolutely jump on it. Like that 12 unit I'm buying. Um, the reason I'm, I have a contract right now is because I am actually putting a master lease agreement on it. So I'm going to buy it in 2022, January, because right now its income isn't quite at where it should be. So I told the owner, I'm like, hey, I'll give you a slightly higher price for what it's worth. But I got to take over management today, go send notices to all the tenants, increase the income, improve the operations, probably turn over half a building before I even buy it. And then when I buy it, he's also going to give me 20% seller financing on it. The only reason I'm willing to pay more than what's worth right now is because of the terms I'm getting on it. So those are the deals I'd be willing to jump into. Like those where, you know, maybe with some creative structures, it actually makes sense. But otherwise, like I have not bought in, I've not offered anything on anything on the MLS in months. Um, basically just because it's a waste of time for myself and my agent. How much is the 12, 12 bucks now? So that first one that you bought back in 20. Oh, wait, how much did you buy for back in 2018 or 19? Yeah. So 2018, that one I bought for 715,000. So that was about 58 a door. This yeah. most recent one, I tied it up for 80,000. That's still pretty good for Moncton. That's still really good for Moncton. It's, it's still really good. Right. Um, like the way I see it is with these buildings, when I underwrite them, unless they're in exceptionally good condition, I just blanket say 20,000 a unit in repairs. So that includes the interior units plus a common area. Right. And right now the ARV on these sort of buildings is coming in at a hundred, maybe 105 per door. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's not much spread there. The only reason I'm doing this is because I'm able to get in with very little money. So it just still makes sense. So question, um, that book that you're reading, the most important thing, right? Is that, is yes. that the title? Okay. Yes. Um, what was the takeaway from that book that made you realize, okay, I'm going to, kind of slow down on growth because it's it's like books always give some amazing insight right and i want to just kind of jump in your head and figure out like what was it about that book where it made you feel like you needed to take the pedal off yeah so a lot of it it was you know um i'm trying to think of the best way to explain it so like he, he kind of the way the book is structured is it's a guy who's a he's this fund manager and over the last like two or three decades he's just been writing these 
almost a little memos on his blog that he would share with his investors. And this is a compilation of a lot of those thoughts, right? So a lot of these thoughts came, were written during the period of 2004 to 2008, right? Just when the US things were getting really heated and really bubbly. And basically a lot of the, you know, a lot of the attitudes, the investing attitudes that he had noticed with people back then are kind of reoccurring now. One of the things that he mentioned in the book that I liked was that obviously you can't predict the future, but you can observe what the current climate is now, right? And the way, when I look at the current investing climate and real estate, at least, right, we have fairly lax lending standards. They are tightening up in a week or so, so we'll see how that goes. But everyone wants to get in. People are super bullish on it. And right now, sellers are greedy. You know, buyers can't get anything. And, you know, there's multiple bids everywhere. Like you guys have seen this across Canada, right? And then, you know, one of the... and and his thoughts were just that, you know, the, the truly, like in a, in a rising market, it, a rising tide raises all boats, but it's only when the tide goes out that you can see who's swimming naked, right? So a, a true investor is one that who's able to minimize his losses in the downturn. Anybody can make a ton of money in the up market. And sometimes the ones who make the most money, right, that everyone is like lauding them and say, hey, this guy's amazing. It's like tripling his money within two or three years. Yeah, that's great. But then when things turn sideways, he may also be the guy who loses them, right? So it's very like, you know, it's, it's kind of very common sense things about like risk and reward. Um, You'd be surprised, man. About- I don't think real estate investors are known for being particularly risk adverse. The majority of real estate investors are not risk adverse, right? We're not, and, and they would like to say they are invest for cash flow and guess for cash flow, but cash flow, yes, I, I do agree it's a good risk mitigant but you're still highly leveraged nonetheless, you know? Totally. And um, well, the thing is, the thing is like the cash flow is disappearing, right? When in a market like New Brunswick, I feel like the cash flow is, is getting tight. Like I can't imagine how people in Ontario make it work, like where you guys are. Like I know you used to invest a lot in, in Windsor, right? Like, like, is there even any cash flow at this point? Like true, true yeah. cash flow when you underwrite property. Yeah, when you increase the interest rates, your cash flow will get very slim. At current interest rate environment, yeah, there is cash flow, but put it to three or four percent, you're probably neutral, and that you don't want to be neutral as well because that's not risk averse. Exactly right. Or like I'll see instances of people who will look at a deal and they'll say, "Hey, if I turn this into Airbnb or a student rental, I'm getting like a seven cap on it. That's awesome. That's an amazing return." But the way I see it is like, hey. When you do short-term rental, that's a completely different business. You can't be underwriting it the same as a long-term multi, like long-term lease, right? Like the banks aren't stupid. There's a reason they don't lend a certain way. Um, and I'm not saying that guys can't succeed. I, I, you know, I've known lots of guys like on social media who do like Airbnb and arbitrage and they're making crazy returns, but it's, it's like saying the newbie who comes in there say, and they get sold the idea that, Hey, you buy this, you know, this very expensive product. If you just make it into a steward rental, you'll get this great cash flow. On it. Like, yes, you can, but keep in mind that, you know, you're, you're really overpaying for a lot of work that you have to do and you're buying more of an active business well, than you are like an investment. But you get, money. In, the, in those businesses you get, I guess you get rewarded for the additional risks that you take when you implement a student yeah. housing or you implement Airbnb, right? Higher risk, higher return. That makes sense. But I'd echo what Stephen was saying is that, Cash flow is getting squeezed in a lot of these markets. Like when I went to New Brunswick and when I bought my two property there, it was because cash flow was whatever it was. I, I don't remember my numbers now, right? But let's just call it like a thousand bucks, right? Um, and then when it dropped to like five, six hundred bucks, I'm like, 
New Brunswick's not appreciating the same as example, BC or Ontario. Your return is in the cash flow and in the ability to burn and get the cash, cash on cash return. Once you squeeze that return, it's, is the return worth the risk that you're taking, right? Like as Steven mentioned, if it hits 10% vacancy in another five or 10 years, like where's my reward for taking that risk, right? And as investors, we might be, we, we, we might not be risk averse, but we are getting rewarded for the risk that we're taking. And the yeah, moment absolutely. that reward stops is the moment that you kind of stop or, or decrease your investing, right? Or absolutely. Investing. I, you, you, you hit the nail on the head. Like you have to be compensated for the risk you're taking. And the, what I'm seeing in the market now is people are not being compensated for taking those risks. Yeah, I don't think risk One more thing. I, I, feel, I, I just enjoy talking about we, this topic. We were way off topic on this. I know, I know. But this is, this is like something that uh, grinds my gears is that, and I, and I think you mentioned this, Stephen, is about like seller financing. It's totally fine. But sometimes people get 80% um, loan to value from the bank and get 20% um, from the seller, right? As a, as a vendor take back. And they're like, oh, I'm going to overpay a bit more above market value because it's fully leveraged. And they might say like the seller is going to hold the mortgage for one year. Well, what happens after that year is done? You know, yeah. do you have that 20%? Like if you don't have that 20%, then you got to pay the seller back. What happens if prices take a dip, right? What happened to prices stay flat? Cause you got to still pay the fees to, you know, discharge the mortgage that the seller registered second entitled, so on and so forth. But people are not that far fetched looking. They're just looking for the acquisition today, which is concerning, right? They're not, and they're almost everyone is probably going to be like, Oh, upward appreciation over the next five years. Well, what happens from now until those five years, do you think it's going to increase steadily? And if not, what's your game plan between now until then? Right. Um, but yeah, we went a bit off topic. I just thought it was definitely like, I mean, Steven's passionate in the topic we are as well. So why not? Hey, all good, man. I love, I love talking about this stuff. I hope you can tell. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Steven. So I, I mean, let's get this back on topic. I think what a lot of people want to hear is cause I think you might be our first guest that's actually investing in new Brunswick, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so what are the returns that you get actually getting? Like if you, if you walk through a deal from purchase price, uh, ideally like, uh, the most, like one of the most recent deals that you've done, um, walking through from purchase price to like, um, what you're spending on renovations. I know we already touched on that, but your cash on cash return, your expectations for the burr, um, that'll give a lot of our guests an idea of what to expect in Moncton. And, and yeah, I know Moncton is different from the rest of New Brunswick, but yeah. <laughs> totally, man. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I'll go over like, it, this is a smaller deal that I'm working on. Um, so it is a, this is going to be a full burr where I'm anticipating pulling on my initial, um, equity out of it. So it's a fourplex that I bought back in, uh, September of 2020. So when I bought it, I bought it for $200,000 from a wholesaler. Um, so he got a funded contract for like 170,000. So he's making like a 30,000 uh, wholesale fee on it. So good for him. Um, but the way I saw it was I'm buying in at 50 a door. This, you, this building, I got it appraised at closing. I got a as is and as complete appraisal on it. So it appraised for, I think 230 or 260 as is, mm -hmm. but the as complete appraisal came in at 430. Right. So I told them what I thought the rents were going to be that my property manager told me about. So then I had this present done. So I'm like solid. Okay. I know exactly what's going to be once I complete it, not assuming there's any market appreciation. Um, and Back I up, how did you lock up the deal actually? Let's, let's get into that part. And then uh, it was a wholesaler who brought it to me. Oh, okay. Yeah, that was right. Yeah, that was right. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so, so I anticipated renos. I was going to do like basically a thorough cosmetic reno of all the units. And we do the roof and maybe we paint the building. So I was anticipating somewhere around eighty to $90,000 in renovation costs. 
that has since ballooned. <laughs> I ended up completely gutting the top three units and found out there was no insulation. So we had to reinsulate everything, redrive all the top three units. Um, we found aluminum wiring, so we had to rip all that out and put it back in. I had a hobo break into the lock in the basement unit and steal some wiring, so I had to go fix that. Um, so all in all, my costs did balloon quite a bit. We're probably looking at one hundred twenty dollars to $230,000 in rentals. So I'd be in for two hundred. After repairs, I'd be in for about, say, three three thirty to be on the higher side. Right, so I know my ARV is still four thirty, so I can get an eighty percent refinance on exit, which is solid. And then this one, I I did bring in a JV partner for. So it was a it was a classmate of mine, or not a classmate, but someone I knew from from dentistry. So he put up all the down payment funds and renovation funds. And then the way we're doing it is on refinance. I was going to pay him out all of his initial capital plus like a preferred return, and then he maintains like a twenty percent. Um, indefinitely of all the cash flows and all the equity, right? Whereas I get 80% of the cash flow and equity. So I get to go in all in um, with none of my own money and then I get a cash flowing asset at the back end of it and hopefully a bit of refinance proceeds. That's an interesting model. Yeah, that's a perfect (laughs) example of a joint venture that can be whatever you literally make it to be, right? He's giving you all the capital, but you're also giving him a preferred rate of return on the capital. So it's kind of like probably, I'm I'm just going to assume like six to seven or 8% or something like that. Um, that way he can service the debt. Cause I'm assuming he's pulling from a student line of credit if he's your classmate or something. Um, and then he continues to have a very, a smaller stake, but he has a stake going on in perpetuity, which could be worth um, mm-hmm. a good amount of money right down the road. So that's really interesting. What's your cash flow projections on a fourplex? So when a fourplex is ARV is at 430, um, what's your post refinance cash flow going to be on that? Roughly? It's probably going to be somewhere around 150 a door, somewhere around there. 150 to 200. Right now, rents have jumped up. If we're able to exceed that a little bit, we'll get a bit more cash flow. So, on a bill on a four unit, then we're talking about somewhere like a 600 to maybe 700 a month in cash flow. And right. it's going to carry all its operating expenses. That's awesome. Yeah, that, that's amazing, man. And I'm assuming the property appreciated even more than 430 since purchase, right? Yeah, it'll probably, it'll probably, I can probably try and sell it for like four probably under five, just under 500, especially because yeah. I put in all new everything. That's um, pretty sweet, man. I'm, I'm in it just for the long term. So I'll just hold it unless someone gives me like a crazy offer. Yeah. Yeah. So going back to what we were talking about, like if that fourplex is at 600 bucks a month cash, like true cash flow, right? Like not like the way that some people calculate cash flow, the way that Steven calculated, I'm sure it's like true cash flow. Um, I know people that are buying fourplexes there in the high threes that need like 70 to 80 grand worth of work. And then like they're refinancing at 500. So that's $600 a month cash flow is really dropping to like somewhere around like 500, right? It's just like, at what point do you like, do you stop it, right? And that, that goes back to the topic that we were talking about before as well. And you gutted your unit, eh? Like uh, you said yes. you actually gutted it. So man, that's it's, right. everything's due. <laughs> right down to the studs, exactly. Just yeah. on the top three, the basement, we still kept it. The original plumbing alarm. That's awesome, man. All right, Steven. So generally at this time in the podcast, we like to ask our guests um, three questions just to kind of get an idea of who you are. So our first question, Steven, is where are we going to be seeing you five years from now? Personal life, investing life, you're going to be investing in none of it or what's the plan? (laughs) (laughs) Dave, the cash flow is good there, right? (laughs) No. uh, So obviously I'll be, I'll be focusing probably just on more on family life, right? Um, the reason I got into investing was to kind of build that financial freedom, just so I can make choices without the, you know, the burden of like finances factoring into my decisions. Um, I'm going to be, I'm actually moving up North to rural BC for the next couple of years to work as a dentist. So hopefully by then I'll make it back to Vancouver. 
Um, and then, you know, just in terms of investing, I'm going to scale it back and try and be much more of a passive investor. I'll probably just hold on to what I got, sell off the underperforming assets and move more into a, you know, like a passive world and then find some entrepreneurial young guy and then I'll throw my money at him. When, when you said move up up north, I was like, oh shit, he actually moved to it's like literally yellow knife or something. Yeah, no, I think we're, I think we're going to be about an hour and a half away from the Yukon. So pretty, pretty far up there. Yeah. So that's interesting. Cause like you, you essentially, I'm, I'm sure with all these like 50 units or so, um, you're relatively financially independent, right? So, so now you can kind of focus on doing the things you like. Um, you kind of live the lifestyle you want as well. And, and ultimately you're still, you were in, in vet, veterinary school or no dental school, right? Dental school. Uh, yeah, exactly. yeah. So I'm sure that, that must be something you like. <laughs> yeah. It's funny how every high performer wants to take the passive role after eh? it's a lot of work, man, doing the active shit. It's not, it's not all, uh, it's not all glory. <laughs> it, it is, but you know what? It's, it's a way to, for, you know, like an average dude to really scale up, right? Yeah. To create wealth that wasn't there. So that's, exactly. that's why we do it. Me and Austin awesome were talking about this yesterday, right? Like at, at what point, at, at what point do you stop? At what point is it enough enough, right? Like, like, do we want to get to like a hundred doors? And what is the point of getting to a hundred doors? Is it just like an ego thing or like, what are we trying to do here? Right. And, yeah. uh, and really, man, the goalposts keep moving. They really keep moving. Yeah, they do. It's like, it's never enough. Right. Cool. Um, okay. Yeah. And question number two is if you won $10 million and you had seven days to spend it, not all of it can be spent on real estate. What would you do with it? Okay. Yeah. I, I'm guessing you guys want like more of a creative answer. Um, I don't know. I'll probably buy like a, buy a ticket to like Virgin Galactic, go to space, check it out. Bring some <laughs> friends with me. Um, I don't know, build my own gym just so like I can just work out with my buddies because I love the energy when, uh, you know, you have buddies in the gym and, uh, yeah. Buy one house in Vancouver, just one. Yeah, one house in <laughs> just Vancouver. One. <laughs> uh, buy a little garage. Yeah, yeah buy a garage. <laughs> That's awesome, man. Yeah, I don't even know. Like, is there? Is there are there tickets to space? I, I think I saw something about like two hundred fifty grand, and you can reserve a spot. Holy shit! Like, I, I don't want to be the first guy, but maybe I'll be like you know, the, the tenth, the tenth trip to go up there. He's been talking about it for years, so you probably wouldn't be able to experience that for a while. But, um, all right, Steven, our, our last question, if you could have dinner with anyone dead or alive, who would you choose and why? Dead or alive. Hmm. I think I probably, this is probably going to be an unconventional one, but Marcus Aurelius, he's like a, uh, he was like a Roman emperor, like way back then. And he was like known as the philosopher King, like, and he really made, um, the school of philosophy, of stoicism really popular. And I don't know, I think it'd be really cool to pick the brains of the guy who ruled over a large part of the known world and uh, yet did it with a very interesting perspective on the world. Steven's a very deep dude. Yeah, <laughs> very deep dude. You know, all of the quotes we post on Instagram, he wants to meet those guys who created those quotes. Yeah. <laughs> That's so funny. Awesome, man. Yeah, no, thank you for joining us in today's podcast. You're doing amazing things. You're the definition of an action taker. You know, you started at a young age, um, and you were a sophisticated, it seemed like you were pretty sophisticated right off the bat. You surrounded yourself with the right people. You took all the right steps and you didn't care to invest long distance, right? Like most people are afraid to invest two or three hours away from the city. You're investing like probably five hour flight away from your hometown, right? So that's, that's crazy, man. Um, I applaud you for all of the success you have. I know you're going to continue doing great things. And, uh, if people want to reach out to you, how can they do so? Uh, Instagram is probably the best way. Uh, so just follow me at Stephen Huang, R E R E for real estate. 
And uh, just send me a message if you want to chat. I love talking about this stuff. Awesome, man. Appreciate you uh, jumping on. And for those who enjoyed this episode, make sure to like, comment, share it with a friend, go on iTunes, give it a five-star rating. It helps bring amazing guests like Steven out here. And until next time, everyone, invest smarter and live better. 